John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here ends the reading of God's word. If you're visiting, we want to welcome you. Glad that you're here with us this morning. We're going to look together at the Lord's word to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And the word of God reads, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. 
and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How do you suppose that success is measured in a local church in our day, in evangelical America? Many believe it's by way of seating capacity that determines the success of a church. Others, the number of programs that meet felt needs of the church. Perhaps their budget. The number of hours, perhaps, that have been logged in community service. Or perhaps the rate of numerical growth. It's often believed that numbers are a sign of strength and health. And if there's strength and, and health in numbers, then the church in Philadelphia was weak and sick. Now, as you recall, these seven letters are laid out in a chiastic order. The first and last letter are reflective somewhat of one another. The second and the second to last mirror one another to some degree. And the three in the middle are very similar. Smyrna, the second letter, Philadelphia, the second to last letter, receive absolutely no rebuke from the Lord. You do not read in the second letter and the second to the last letter, nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, last week we looked at the church in Sardis. It was a popular church within the community, culturally accepted. We read of no opposition from the Nicolaitans. We read of no opposition from ethnic Jews. We read no opposition from inbred heresy by a woman-like figure that goes by the name of Jezebel. But we read of Sardis as having a great reputation. And Jesus said, I know you have a reputation as being alive, but I say you're dead. The church of Smyrna, the second letter, I know your poverty, Jesus said, but you are rich. Things are not as they appear in the book of Revelation. Philadelphia was small. It had little power. It was under attack. Yet they kept his word and they kept his name. Philadelphia means brotherly love. This is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Just in case you don't know that. This is the Philadelphia that was located in Asia Minor, founded, established by King Attalus II, who had been given the nickname Philadelphus, brother-lover. He had a love for his brother. 
This was because of the love he had for his brother. And in a monarch, when one appears to be missing and the other is given the reign and the throne, and that brother's discovered that he's really not dead and the brother gives back the throne, that's love. That was rare. The city of Philadelphia was also prone to earthquakes. And in 17, AD 17, there was a great earthquake that destroyed Philadelphia. And for five years, they suffered aftershocks, and people during, in each aftershock would flee the city, and they would relocate to the surrounding areas of the city in fear of another great earthquake. So that occurred for five years. Philadelphia was also known for its love for Greek culture, and it became known as Little Greece. I could spend more time on the background of Philadelphia, but we have a lot of ground to cover. So what I want to get to is Jesus Christ who addresses the church in Philadelphia. What we'll see revealed or made manifest through this letter, his faithfulness, his provision, his protection, and his people's vindication. And he'll close with his summons. So let's begin by looking at his faithfulness. Here now is the spokesman speaking through the angel given to John to the people of the church of Philadelphia. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. The words of the Holy One. The words of the true one. These are words used to speak of God the Father in chapter 6. The book of Revelation labors to show us that everything God is and everything that God does is everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus does. All that God the Father deserves is all that Jesus deserves, revealing his deity. Because as Colossians 1 tells us, he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's Logos. He is the word. He's creator God. And we'll see it stressed more vividly as we continue in our studies in the week to come. But here the emphasis is different. And the point being stressed here is that he is the Messiah who was promised to Israel. He's the Holy One. The opposite of holy is not sinful. The opposite of holy is that which is common. He's not common. He is holy. He is set apart. And he's true. He's the true one. Not true in the sense of being true over and against false messiahs, but in the Old Testament sense, he's the trustworthy one. He's reliable. He is the faithful one. And this is common in John's writings, Jesus being the truth. And in in John chapter 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well, she said, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and what? Truth. 
So Jesus is true, not in the sense of being factually true, but being rather genuinely true, authentic. Hear Revelation. Jesus is the truly holy one. True in Old Testament language means that he's always faithful and true in upholding his covenantal promises. As the one who can be trusted to keep his word, referring to himself here as the true one, he's recalling the idea of covenantal faithfulness. Given that the covenant he made in Old Testament times is now being fulfilled with his church in Jesus Christ, and that will be made evident to us this morning. Moreover, his messianic credentials are made even more clear when he refers to himself as the true one. So there we have his covenantal faithfulness, and we move on to his provision. His messianic provision. He, the faithful and true one, notice, it is he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, in chapter 1, Jesus declared himself as the one uh, having the keys of death in Hades, chapter 1, verse 18. But there he says, I can unlock the grave, setting free from death and hell whomever I desire. Because he's life. He's judge. And that metaphor is picked up again here, only this time it refers to the key of David. Speaking of having the keys of God's eternal kingdom. Now, as stated at the outset of our studies in the book of Revelation, Revelation is constantly building upon Old Testament imagery we'll constantly be going back to the Old Testament so that we're enabled to rightly interpret the book of Revelation. And this here harkens back to Isaiah chapter 22. The oracle against Shebna, where this officer of Hezekiah has his stewardship removed. He's the chief of staff, if you will, who controls access to the king. He'd become disloyal. He'd proven himself unfaithful. And in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 19, the scripture reads that I will thrust you from your office. You will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. The government will be upon his shoulders. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. So Jesus identifies himself here as the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no one can shut, the one who shuts and no one can open. He is the Davidic king. He is the Davidic Messiah who now sits eternally on David's throne. David, the one who ruled ancient Israel, foreshadowed the one who rules true spiritual Israel now and forevermore. kingdom inaugurated at the first coming of Christ 
to be fully consummated in a new heaven and new earth at the second coming of Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to me. All power has been given to me, Jesus said, in heaven above and earth below. He has it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, he will exercise total control over who enters the house of the king. So this prefigures, the Isaiah passage that is, the role of Christ. The role of the one who would uphold the messianic kingdom. The very kingdom of God. He rules now. So having the keys is, is to have the undisputed authority to either admit or exclude And he alone determines who's allowed into that kingdom and who is not. Now, in the midst of his provision, notice his evaluation, verse 8 of the church in Philadelphia. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So his statement, I know your works, is interrupted with a parenthesized promise of an open door set before them. He says, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Who's opened that door? Jesus has opened the door. No one will shut that door from the church that resides in Philadelphia. So Jesus uses here what is called the perfect tense, stressing a past action with ongoing results. In other words, I've opened the door for you into the messianic kingdom, and it remains open. What I have already opened is still open, and no enemy will in any way, nor can they in any way, shut that door. Now what this likely alludes to is the false claims of certain Jews in that day who argued that these heretical Nazarenes would never inherit the kingdom of David because ethnic Jews held the exclusive right to that kingdom. As a result, they excluded the followers of Christ from the synagogue. Remember in John chapter 9, the blind man that Jesus healed on the Sabbath? When he declared who it was that healed him, He was excommunicated. To be excommunicated from the synagogue of the Jews was to be excommunicated socially. You're cut off. And that is why the parents of the blind man didn't verbally profess Christ, the one who did heal him, in fear that they would be excommunicated from the synagogue. But you see, Jesus, the true Messiah, will in the end exclude those that are keeping you out. So do not be intimidated, he says, by these ethnic Jews who falsely claim that they have the access rights to God. They're deceived. I hold the keys. They don't. Aren't you glad he holds the keys? Admission and exclusion are in his hands alone. The only narrow and exclusive road is Jesus Christ, the key holder to the kingdom. You have but little power, and yet you've kept my word. You have not denied my name. 
Those of you today who feel like, I just have a little power. Everywhere I go with, with faith, claiming Christ, I'm facing opposition. My own mother, my own father, my brother, my sister, my kids, whoever it is, he knows you have little power. He knows that you're keeping his word. He knows you haven't denied his name. So to jump to the end of the text, keep conquering. Endure to the end. And you'll see that he's there through it all. So what is he referring to here? This isn't a general kind of faithfulness to the gospel, although that's part and parcel to what's being conveyed here. The tenses of the verbs here indicate that at some point in time past, the church at Philadelphia had been faced with the challenge to deny faith in Jesus Christ, to deny allegiance to the King of Kings. And most likely... It was by way of some situation or situations concocted and stirred up by Jewish opposition. In the midst of it all, they adhered to the true truth. They adhered to the true text. The very reason, by adhering to the word, is is the very reason they did not deny his name. And all they had was the Old Testament. Philadelphia, when they were pressed, the church of Philadelphia, when they were manipulated, when they were intimidated to cave, they stood fast in their commitment to Jesus Christ despite the cost. So it is here in the midst of pressure that temptation comes to compromise, to stray from sound preaching, to stray from where people are teaching the whole counsel of God. Men of God to stray from teaching the whole counsel of God in order to be viewed as being up to the minute. Popular within the culture. And it's here that when we stand faithful that the quality and the competence of a church is revealed where the testimony of Jesus Christ in doctrinal integrity will provoke antagonism, will provoke ridicule, and will provoke rejection, beloved. Okay, this isn't the God of USA led by Glenn Beck. Yes, I like Beck. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Where you have committed members of Jesus Christ, Christ centered worship, when you have faithful exposition of the Word of God, you will most often have a group of people who will stand firm in the midst of hostile attack. A ministry that's designed to build a popular kind of reputation like Sardis or churches of our day that structure their ministries to accommodate and satisfy those that come from the culture or seeker sensitivity, they will crumble under hostile opposition, beloved. You turn up the heat like this, they run like water in a frying pan. Because those kinds of churches only function where it's convenient, where it's comfortable, and where it's cool to serve Jesus, my homeboy. To this persecuted, unpopular, small minutia of believers, he opens a door that no one will shut, that no one can shut. 
For behold, verse 9, I, said Jesus, will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. A little background reminder for us. This group who, who said they are Jews and are not, this, is, this isn't just some group of you know, people saying, hey, I'm a Jew, ethnically. I mean, like me saying that I'm French. But we, ha- we, we have a vivid picture of who they were in Paul's letters, uh, specifically to the church at Galatia. Jews who worshipped God according to the Old Covenant and thought of Christ as the one who basically just put the finishing touches on the Mosaic Covenant. They would see things like, you know, you Gentile believers, if you were to enter by the way of Jesus into our faith, you have to know that in order to be a citizen of this kingdom, of which we Jews were given the keys of in the first place, you must be circumcised, you must keep the dietary laws, and you must keep our Sabbaths. Paul had no patience for Judaizers. Jesus had no patience for Judaizers. And it was pointed out, when it was pointed out that Jesus wasn't the polishing rag on Judaism, but the very fulfillment of all that God gave through Moses to Israel, when the new covenant doctrine was clearly defined, they withdrew from the church. You see the ramifications of this in the writing of the book of Hebrews. They began to stir up opposition against true believers. Whether they were Jew or Gentile believers, it didn't matter. They stirred up opposition. As the church began to grow, these ethnic Jews made sure to point out to imperial Rome that this cult of the Nazarenes, this cult of the way, i.e. Christians, are not part of us. It should not be granted the same kind of protection as favor and favor that we have with you. Not having to bow down and say Caesar is Lord, was one of those privileges. Their religion is altogether different. Thus they slandered the church, Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. The synagogue of Satan there slandered the church. The Jewish leaders of Paul's day, Paul's ministry, Acts 24, 5 said, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of this sect known as the Nazarenes. Now, Paul's accusers, the most devout religious Jewish leaders of the day, Jesus calls a synagogue of Satan. And in reality, he says they're not true Jews. Why? Because they're not in Christ, the true Jew true Israel, the true king, the true vine, the true temple. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you. In Isaiah and in Ezekiel, where they prophesy of Israel's future, They often return to the theme of victory, the victory of God's people over Gentile opposition. 
in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 45, 14. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. So here we have the final victory of Israel and the ensuing conversion of Gentile nations. You with me, beloved? As we approach the New Testament, we see how to interpret the Old Testament. When we read of certain passages in, uh, that are cited in the book of Acts, and it says this was accomplished to fulfill this passage of the Old Testament, how do we know that Jesus fulfilled that passage and his ministry fulfilled that passage? Why? How do we know? Because the New Testament tells us so. Amen? What we read here is what theologians call a reverse motif. Jesus now flips the script. These passages we just read in Isaiah. It's not here in Revelation, Gentile oppressors who will be humbled before ethnic Israel. But rather, it will be the ethnic Jewish oppressors of the church of Jesus Christ who will come to acknowledge that the church is his true Israel and that they are true Gentiles, spiritually speaking, and they will be caused to bow down at their feet, realizing Jesus is Messiah. G.K. Beale, probably the foremost scholar on the book of Revelation today, said this, quote, This prophecy has been fulfilled ironically in the Gentile church, which has become true Israel by virtue of its faith in Christ. In contrast, ethnic Israel fulfills the role of Gentiles because of their unbelief, end quote. They're going to acknowledge here, as we read, the, the words of Christ, I have loved you, refers to the one definitive act of the past, which is his death on behalf of that people. At Calvary. The cross. The context of this, the context of the New Testament is clear. For instance, Romans 2, verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There is a true Israel, beloved. There always has been a true Israel, beloved. And there always, beloved, will be a true Israel of God. Galatians 3.29. If you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is simply the theology of the covenant of God. The salvific covenant of Almighty God. The covenantal promises are for those who follow Christ by faith. John the Baptist said in his ministry, during his ministry, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, when all the Jews, religious Jews, the hierarchy of the day, they were checking him out. He said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I'm one of those. Thinking that the Gentiles would come and grovel at their feet, Jesus says it's the other way around. It will be these ethnic unbelieving Jews who are casting you out who will come and bow at your feet. This is another expression of Romans chapter 9 through 11. The olive tree, Jesus Christ, and the natural branches, ethnic Jews who were broken off, whereas the wild branches were grafted into the one true vine, Gentiles, is so that the natural branches might become envious and see what God is doing in the true Israel of God and become envious and be regrafted into their own olive tree. For if they do not remain in their unbelief, they will be grafted in because Romans 11.23 says God has the power to graft them in again into the tree of God's covenant. Jesus says, I have the key of David. I not only have the key but I also decide what the kingdom is and I also decide who its citizens are. Amen. (laughs) My kingdom is made up of both Jew and Gentile who look to me in faith. They're the ones that make up my true Israel. I open this door to all all who have received me. I shut this door to those who reject me. It has nothing to do with ancestry, heritage, or race. The point is this, beloved. Non-believing Jews have absolutely no better standing with God than do unbelieving Gentiles. There's one covenant, one way. Don't think, beloved, that the prophecies given to Israel are yet to be fulfilled. I have one dear friend, a couple dear friends of mine, known for a long time. He said, brother, it's about the land promises of Israel. They're yet to be fulfilled. He said, brother, have you not read Joshua 21? Verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. They took possession of it. They settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Notice, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Hebrews 8.13 In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is already, is ready to vanish away. When you read correctly the New Testament, you see that those promises of old are already fulfilled and are being fulfilled. 
Now, you don't want to read into this glorious theology, beloved, as some ignorantly do, anti-Semitism. If that were so, John would be an anti-Semite, Paul would be an anti-Semite, Jesus would be an anti-Semite. God's eternal covenant community is his church, the called out ones, his elect from throughout redemptive history, Old Testament, New Testament saints as one. In the Old Testament, true Israel was his true church. The New Testament, the true church is his true Israel. The church does not replace Israel. Again, the church does not replace Israel as something new. It does not replace it as something distinct any more than a butterfly replaces the caterpillar. But is Israel in full bloom? The church is Israel fully matured. It's in a new phase of existence. As I said a few weeks ago, if I had a photo of myself from fourth grade, they used to call me Little Johnny Red Leader. You would not look at me and say, John Leader, the 45-year-old, replaces Little Johnny Red Leader, the fourth grader. Would you say that? Not one of you would say that I replace him. I am him fully grown and matured. Still maturing. <laughs> As is the church. The one true Israel are those who've embraced the one true Messiah. The seven lampstands in the book of Revelation represent what? The seven churches. Seven is the number of perfection. Seven churches. The lampstand in the Old Testament was the symbol for who? Israel. Here now to these true Israelites, we see the God of promise. First, he promises that some of those who, that, who, who oppose them at that point, some, Philadelphia, who oppose you now will come in repentance and bow down at your feet. I don't believe this is the great and final day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because the context seems to indicate that some out of that unbelieving synagogue will be caused by Christ to believe and to bow down at their feet, i.e. next to them. Number one. Secondly, he protects his own. Notice his protection, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there is here a reciprocal, notice, a reciprocal kind of keeping. I will keep you because you have kept my word I will keep you from the hour of trial. Because you've kept my word, I will keep you from this hour of trial. Now, when we began our studies in Revelation, I said that numbers are symbolic. As with the majority of the other numbers in this book, this one is also symbolic. It's speaking of its brevity, a short, condensed period of time described as an hour, not 60 minutes. In other places in Revelation, times of struggle, times of affliction are described as three and a half years, 1,260 days, 42 months. Months. Those are all synonymous terms, and they mean the exact same period of time. And that takes us also back to the Old Testament, a time of trouble that is much longer than an hour, a short period of time. 
So here it's described as an hour. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. Now, if you grew up in your faith and dispensationalism as I did, you already know that this is one of those verses, it's a champion verse for what is referred to as a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, our dispensational friends, the majority of them adhere to this belief. Now, the common teaching is this, that before anything gets too bad, you don't have to worry because you'll be out of here. I heard uh, pastor's corner or pastor's question time on some radio station, and a lady called in asking about this, and he said, well, we don't have to worry because we won't be here. It doesn't really matter, you know, what these things will be because we won't be here. Now, that teaching arose as recent as 1870. And I'll get into that more in the weeks to come to help define these different eschatological positions. Last things. Question. Would Jesus promise this historic church, Church of Philadelphia in Asia Minor, something that would occur thousands of years later? No, this letter is applicable to them. First and foremost, the book of Revelation is an epistle. It's prophetic And the genre of literature is apocalyptic, which means it's all pictures. It's all symbolic. That's what apocalyptic literature is. So this is applicable to them first and foremost. Chapter 1 clearly tells us, beloved, that we, not unlike them, are in an epic of tribulation while we live in an already inaugurated kingdom. John said of himself in verse 9, chapter 1, I, John, your brother, am your what? Partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. So these seven churches, like all the rest throughout church history, have experienced tribulation. This, beloved, is the last day. John the Apostle, in his letter, what do he say? This is the last day. It was the last day then, it's the last day now. But some, over the last 160 years or so, believe in a secret rapture of the church because they, they believe that God would never allow the church to go through and suffer this kind of persecution. So therefore, they say, as one dear friend of mine says, he's going to lift them up out of tribulation just like he lifted Noah and his family up out of judgment. Now, as you look through Scripture, you see that God is always allowing people to go through trouble, trials, and tribulation. But nevertheless, he keeps them in those trials. He keeps them in the midst of the trouble, not necessarily from the trouble. So Noah and his family, they were spared from what? The judgment of God. Why? Because they were his elect. Did they go through tribulation? I would say so. I would say that 40 days of rain is a tribulation. 150 days before the waters subsided, that's tribulation. But he kept them in the midst of the storm. So here you have a 600-year-old man who lives in an ark that he had to build with a bunch of smelly animals for six months. If that's not a form of tribulation, then I really don't know what is. They were spared from God's judgment, not the tribulation associated with the judgment. Big difference. Each one of these letters to the seven churches conclude with this. Those who conquer, those who endure to the end will receive this, 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 or this. 
You must conquer. You must endure. There's no way to endure something unless you're present. There's no way to conquer unless you're in attendance. Amen? Patient endurance is required because as believers, you will guarantee go through trouble. You will go through trial. You will go through tribulation. But I will keep you, Jesus said, in the midst of the trouble. In addition to that, when we read here, this is a trial that is coming on the whole world. This targets earth dwellers. We're going to see the cosmic reality of what goes down in persecution with God's in Christ's church when we get into Revelation. We'll see behind the veil and the unseen battle that occurs that results itself in persecution against God's people down here. And we'll see seven different pictures of that. Seven different camera shots of that great struggle as we move our way through the book of Revelation. So, are those earth dwellers, is this global? Or is this the known world of the first century? You remember the language of Luke chapter 2, verse 1? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the, all the world should be registered. Or in Romans 1, where Paul said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul also said the gospel has gone out to all the world. This is, when this is rightly interpreted, we read, this is the entire Roman world. Now, immediately, this refers to the forthcoming time of intensified trial that will in some way come upon all those earth dwellers within the Roman Empire, yet it's still applicable to us today. It meant something to them. And it didn't, doesn't mean something to us that it never meant for them in the first place. It was written to them for us. Just like 1 Corinthians was written to them and it's for us. And this phrase here, earth dwellers, is, is used repeatedly throughout the Revelation is those who are the enemies of God. Through it all, he promises to spiritually protect his people. And this judgment that comes, beloved, you know what this kind of judgment does? What it does is it exposes what these unbelievers really are. It exposes who these unbelievers really are because it exposes the nature and character that makes up these earth dwellers. So this is not a kind of rapture protection from the great tribulation. That's not in view here. I will keep you from the hour of trial. That phrase is used in one other place in the New Testament. And our brother Mark read from it this morning. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He said, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them. That's precisely what's in view here. Jesus is echoing here his own high priestly prayer. He affirms this church in Philadelphia. So this is not a kind of protection from physical persecution, but rather, beloved, from this, spiritual apostasy. To walk away from, to turn your back on, the professed faith that one makes with their mouth. 
In the midst of your suffering, I know you have little power, but I will bless you and I will keep you, he says, as you have kept my word about patient endurance, as you have kept what I have written and commanded you about enduring patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And you will in no way suffer spiritual loss. Why? Because no one will ever snatch you out of my hand. Ever. Regardless of what you have to face physically, you will not be snatched out of my hand. Regardless of the temptation you face, regardless of the misery you feel, regardless of the dark night of the soul you go through and you feel like a wretch, and positionally, you're not a wretch because you're righteous in Christ. He holds you in his hand. You'll never, ever be able to be taken away from him, nor can you walk out. You will be kept, and it will be proven by your perseverance. Verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. In other words, remain steadfast in keeping my word about, again, faithful endurance. Do not be persuaded to give up gospel life. Do not be persuaded to turn from gospel hope so that your crown be seized. As trials are about to be turned up, the temptation in the midst of those trials will be turned up to renounce your faith in me, Jesus Christ. And the encouragement here is to hold fast because I'm coming quickly. I promise you it's going to be turned up and I promise I'm coming quickly. Now, could this be his second coming? Could be. But I do not think it fits the context when you read all the other letters. This is like his providential coming to the other churches that don't repent. So this coming is likened to that, not to visit them in judgment, but to the contrary. Remember he said, if you do not repent from this, this, and this, I will come to you quickly, and Ephesus, I'll remove your lampstand from you. That's a providential coming of judgment upon the church. Now, there's nothing contingent upon the second coming of Christ. So if the church doesn't repent... That doesn't mean he can't come back in glory, right? His promise here is to do exactly what he said in verse 10. In the midst of the coming trial, he promises to keep them in the midst of the trial. And during this kind of affliction, this will be an amplified sense of my presence for you to enable you to endure the hour. A personalized presence to ensure them the ability to hold on, to persevere, to maintain allegiance to Jesus Christ. That is more in flow with the context of all these seven letters. When a believer faces the sword, beloved... Renounce faith in Jesus Christ or we run this through you. To men in the past who've had the sword held to their throat as their children and wives were beaten and or raped in front of them. Renounce Christ if you want us to stop. No. They're no greater than you are. Women who've died for the faith, women are no greater than you are. It's the Christ who owns them, that provides them the grace and the endurance in such hostile time to make a stand without crumbling, without denying the name of Jesus Christ. I'm coming to you. I will be there. My presence will be magnified. You will know that I'm there because my grace will abound. 
you will be able to endure the hour of trial. Now, they no doubt, and people like them no doubt, experience the immediate presence of Jesus to a greater degree than any of us ever have. But even so, beloved, we will no less experience his close and personal presence any less than they have in time of need. His immediate presence that sustains you in a time of great trial or difficulty, when your friends are pressing you and pressing you and pressing you to compromise, he will provide you the strength. His presence will be known as you stand and remain faithful to his command to endure with persistence. Isn't that encouraging? Notice now his people's vindication. Verse 12, the one who conquers, okay, the one, there it is again, the one who endures, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, pillars were ancient symbols of security and strength. When all else would fall in a city, i.e. through an earthquake, an earthquake, what's left standing? Pillars. And throughout antiquity, archaeology reveals for us that oftentimes highly accomplished dignitaries, philosophers, distinguished citizens of that day would have their name engraved in a pillar left for future generations to see. And then drawing upon this ancient practice here, Jesus promises that his conquerors will receive the same kind of recognition. Where? In God's temple. Usually these pillars would be found standing outside of pagan temples. All faithful service to Jesus Christ, beloved, will not go unnoticed. You might not be recognized here. You'll be recognized there. I will actually make him a pillar. I will actually make her a pillar. In the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. Now, this promise was given to a city, as I said, that was prone to major earthquakes. After the earthquake of AD 17, again, those most obvious surviving structures were pillars. These believers are the pillars. Where? In the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 22. Its temple, the New Jerusalem, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Meaning that the entire recreated world is the temple because of his glorified presence. It's him. He's the temple on a new heaven and a new earth. The last verse in Ezekiel reads, Ezekiel 48, 35. And the name of the city from that time shall be, the Lord is there. He's there. Now, notice the identifying marks of God's faithful in eternity future. 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which came down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. They're identified as belonging to him. God's name, believer, 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 believer. His name is on you. Your citizenship is his new Jerusalem. Never will you be separated from him. Never will he be separated from you. Never will you be cast out from his presence. He's opened the door. He holds the keys. He came. He has proven to love you just like he has the church of Philadelphia. The door that's open cannot be shut because he has the keys to it and he's opened it. Those who are conquerors, in other words, those who are true believers will be marked out by the faithful one with the name of the Father, the name of the holy city, and the new name of Jesus Christ. Those who once... I'm closing up, so follow me into the finish line, okay? Those, those who once had no name were not a people, are recipients of an eternal city. Remember the book of Hosea? Hosea is called to marry a prostitute, harlot. The Lord said, take yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom. So Gomer, the one that Homer married, uh, the, uh, uh, Hosea married, as instructed by the Lord, had a daughter named by the Lord, named No Mercy. Hosea chapter 1, verse 8. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people. For you are not my people, I am not your God, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God, and the children of Judah, and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. Peter, in the New Testament, takes this and applies it to Gentiles. In 1 Peter chapter 2. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what Jesus says here. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. Forever branded, beloved, that's what you are. Eternally marked, that's who you are. By Christ, citizens of his kingdom, of which he alone holds the keys. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are his own possession. There is a one people of God, whether they're ethnic Jews or not, one people, a royal priesthood, a chosen race in the vine, Jesus Christ, or not. And the Arnots will be shut out, whether they're Jew or Gentile, ethnically speaking. Now, due to that devastating earthquake in AD 17, 
had it not been for a grant from Rome to bail out Philadelphia and rebuild, it would, have, it would have lain desolate. So in response to the bailout from Rome, the city fathers gave it a new name in honor of Caesar, and they named it Neo-Caesarea, meaning the new city of Caesar. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own, Jesus said, new name. Remember what he said to the church of Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 17? Those who conquer, he had this against them. And he laid out what that is that he has against them. He says, those who conquer, I will give a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Whoever receives it. And then finally, the summons. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These letters all conclude with the same summons. These churches in in the province of Asia, they stress the fact that the message of these letters is meant for all churches of all ages. Seven's the number of perfection. Seven churches are the seven lampstands. And the lampstand in the Old Testament was a symbol for Israel. Notice there's no rebuke here. This is you. There's no rebuke today. There's no rebuke here from the text. This is written to a healthy but persecuted church, a struggling but seemingly weak church. They had little strength, but their health and their strength, according to Jesus, was keeping his word about patient endurance. Keep running. So he commends them for keeping his word. He commends them for not denying his name. So regardless of your troubles, regardless of your trials, regardless of your struggles, regardless of your thinking of yourself, always beating yourself up, take yourself back to the cross where he showed these people that he loves them. Because that's who you are if you're in him. That's who you are. And this is what he's done. So when you want to beat yourself up, if there's something to repent about, repent of it. If you're running with endurance and you're just weary and you have little power like this church, if you're getting smacked around by everyone else, remember whose you are. Remember how he sees you. So although you live here in this age, beloved, in this city of man, you also belong to the city of God and you, want, you have one foot into the door of glory. We are his kingdom. He's established his kingdom. We're here as representatives of that kingdom to a lost and dying world. So may his kingdom come and be made manifest through us because he's already established it through the finished work of the Son. To be fully manifest one day It is second coming where sin will be removed. And at that time, when he comes, if you're already with him, your body in the grave will be brought back together with your spirit, and he's going to come, and when he comes with us, he's not going back. He's going to keep on coming, and that's it. Judgment. 
No second chance. New heaven, new earth, and those that remain when he comes will be caught up with him. Our bodies will be transformed into a body fit for glory. On a new heaven and a new earth, we will dwell right here in Eden recreated. Because that was Adam's role, to extend Eden around the globe. But sin. Jesus came to buy it back buy you back so as a child of God you have already as Hebrews tell, tells us tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come because you're his kingdom children so the experience of his eternal kingdom is already being experienced by you whether you realize it or not you have his name the city of, of the new Jerusalem is upon you you are sealed by the Holy Spirit the scriptures tell us that's who you are because of whose you are. If you're not a Christian this morning and you hear all this and the Spirit of God has moved upon your heart, you know you need him, you know you want him, you want to be saved, not to simply be given a ticket out of hell, but you want the one who paid the price, the one that we're worshiping, You must repent. You're not God. If all you have is an ideal about God, if you're a deist, and all roads lead to heaven in your mind, you must repent of that thinking. Because he's the one who holds the keys, who's the narrow way, who's the only way. Only he can open the door, and when he opens it, it's open now. Come unto Christ. Come to him. Repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. You turn from yourself. You surrender yourself to the one who is Lord. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. You submit to the one who's Lord. And if the Spirit of God has you here and he's brought you to that place to truly repent of your sins, he'll grant you the ability to walk away from it all and to embrace him. And the fruit of that will be made manifest in due time. Because you'll stop loving the world and you'll start loving him and his kingdom as a child of his kingdom. Repent and believe because if you're not in, don't come to the table with us this morning. Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for the promises of old made manifest through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. God, I pray that you would strengthen your people this morning, those that have come in tattered and torn, beat up, beat down, to be lifted up and encouraged. Strengthen that their little power would become much power granted by grace and in your presence, experienced by them to a greater degree. For those that walked in, having a head full of knowledge, they grew up in Sunday school. They know the gospel, but they're not saved. Grant them repentance today. Break down their pride. Break down their facade. And may they bow before the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. May they call out to you for mercy, asking for forgiveness 
understanding Calvary, all that you are and all that you did. Prepare our hearts to come to the table in remembrance of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.